0: This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and we're joined today by Beth Akers, who's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where her work focuses on labor uh, economics and the economics of higher education. It's great to have you here with us today, Beth.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. So, uh, a question that we ask uh, almost all of our guests who come on the show is is out of all the things in the world you could work in or research about, uh, why higher education? What led you to higher education?
1: Sure. So uh, short answer is I just fell right into it. (laughs) I'll give you the long version, though. Um, So uh, many, many years ago, I was pursuing a Ph.D. in economics and really kind of hating every minute of it and was looking for an escape, but wasn't quite sure I wanted to um, stop pursuing my degree altogether. So um, into my inbox, landed an opportunity to go work with the Council of Economic Advisors under the Bush administration, which is this really neat office in um, administrations that it's staffed largely by academic economists. So I had the chance to go spend a year there, work in policy, and then go back to graduate school. Um, and so during that year it was the beginning of the financial crisis um, caused by the, the problems with mortgage lending. And so at that time there was um, also a a corresponding crisis with student lending. There was a liquidity problem um, caused by the same reasons there were problems with liquidity in other financial markets. Congress acted really quickly to pass the Ensuring Continued Access to Student Loans Act. And I was part of a small team of economists that worked with the Department of Education to implement that legislation to make sure that loans were made for the fall semester. Um, so I uh, really got down and dirty with student loan higher education policy very quickly and then went back to graduate school to try to figure out what I was going to write my dissertation on. So I I spoke to my mentor at that time about um, some ideas I had about what to write on. Um, I think I was thinking about writing on human resource economics or something um, equally academic and boring. And um, Eddie Lazier said to me very nicely, that's great, but you're going to write on student (laughs) loans, because that's really the only thing you knew anything about. I had come straight from undergraduate before starting my PhD. And so I took his advice, um, which turned out to be great advice and wrote my dissertation on student loans. Um, At that time, it was a hot issue in uh, the popular news. And so think tanks were looking for people to write on that issue. And um, after graduating with a PhD, I started writing at Brookings on the issues of higher ed finance.
2: So perfect transition, I think, into an issue that is still on the uh, minds of many and, and in the headlines of student loan forgiveness and student debt hitting over $1.5 trillion and all of these headlines that you read a lot about. Uh, what's your take, particularly on the political side of this right now? In the, in the Democratic presidential primary, we see a lot of policy proposals around student loan forgiveness. Who would those proposals help? Who would they hurt? Are there alternatives to them? Mm-hmm. What problem are they trying to solve and so forth?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say it's kind of exciting to have my issue, that is higher ed finance be really a central issue in this campaign. I never thought that I'd see the day where, you know, the first question in the Democratic debate was was about higher education finance policy. So that's kind of crazy. And I absolutely never thought that we'd be talking about student loan forgiveness. To me, that's sort of just, um, you know, this this pie in the sky idea that um, came out of nowhere and came really quickly. Um, I'm an academic economist. So the idea that you invest in education and you use debt to do so and then it pays back over the course of a lifetime is a reasonable um, way of approaching the issue of higher ed finance. So the idea of just wiping away um, is a, is a bit of a in conflict with that notion. And so, you know, practically speaking, the proposals that we have both from um, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are largely regressive in their design and that they're giving a lot of benefits to people who probably really don't need them. And you know, there's been a lot of quibbling over who exactly they benefit and and which segments of the income distribution will or will not be benefited. But what seems very obvious to me is that the people who are going to benefit, a lot of them have a lot of debt. And they also have very high earnings. Um, If you look at who is struggling with their student debt, surprisingly it's not the people who have large balances. The highest rates of default are seen among people who have less than $5,000 in debt. So we've designed this supposed solution that's very expensive and delivering a lot of benefit to the people who are really in great shape. People who have college degrees, often have debt, but then go on to be the most well-off people in our economy.
0: So what would you? Um, so what would be a good alternative to this? Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, what's the problem to be solved? Mm-hmm. Maybe there isn't even a problem to be solved. But what's yeah. the problem to be solved, and how would you solve it around kind of debt financing?
1: So there is a problem. So the fact that people use debt to pay for education to me is not a problem. Mm-hmm. But the fact that sometimes that education doesn't pay off is a problem, and it's it's that education is investing education is risky and it's gotten even more risky as the price tag has continued to tick up year after year after year and so solutions that make it less risky for students are the right solutions interestingly the solution that i think is the right one we sort of already have in place but it doesn't work very well at all and most people don't even know it exists and what's that That is income-based repayment. So missing from the dialogue, particularly among candidates for president, is this idea that people who are struggling with student loans today because they have low income are already eligible to make low payments that are affordable based on how much they're earning. And if they continue to be unaffordable for an extended period of time, those debts will be wiped away and forgiven. Mm -hmm. So what that is is a mechanism that's designed to say – look, income fluctuates over time. There may be periods when these debts are going to cause an undue burden on individuals. Let's make a program that works around that. And if it seems like the degree is not paying off, let's then wipe away that debt so that we don't burden a generation of people with debts that are truly unaffordable. We already have that system in place. The problem is it doesn't work well at all. It's very difficult for people to apply to those programs, and people don't know they exist. And so the utilization is very low. And even for those who are utilizing it, they're not happy with how it's working.
0: So in other words, maybe one of the policy proposals to make this easier. Is that really absolutely the biggest issue? Yeah, to, okay.
1: to very simply. And, and, you know, of course, the devil is in the details of how you make that happen. Um, but it needs to be a streamlined system in which people know if I borrow debt, my degree does not pay off, I am not going to be held accountable for a debt that is really truly unaffordable to me. Of course, we can, you know, quibble over what does that mean, truly unaffordable, right? And we're all probably always going to disagree about that. But it seems to me like that should be the frame in which we're designing a solution.
2: So, so I have two places that I want to go, but I, I think I'll start with uh, one on the media side of this, which is that it seems like the media contributes to the misunderstanding around what you just said about the stats of who has debt and who defaults on debt and so forth and where it pays off. How do we help media better cover this question? Because it seems like they're always resorting to... Averages, Mm -hmm. which is masking this variability. Or or
0: outliers. I mean, even a member, even
2: myself as a member of the media sometimes, uh, I always
0: get annoyed when they you know, profile a student a hundred plus thousand dollars in debt just from undergraduate, mm-hmm. clearly that is a, a much more of an outlier than you know the normal student. So how how can we change that narrative?
1: Well I think that's a real challenge because you know if I were writing newspaper stories, to write an article that says student borrows thirty thousand dollars and then pays it off with relative ease over the course of a lifetime <laughs> right. it, it is absolutely a terrible headline, right? right? Um, and so we get stories like the one about the dentist in Salt Lake City with a million dollars outstanding debt, which is just, I mean, I had to read that that's very astounding. closely. It's astounding. I, and even as a supposed expert, I had to read very closely <laughs> to figure out how, how managed he managed to do that.
2: that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Um,
2: that seems worthy of congratulations to the dentist. But, yeah. Well, so, so let me segue then. It, it seems like that's going to continue to be intractable, but the... Income-based repayment plans, as you said, are an option. Legislation could make them more of a default and more understood potentially. But there's this other notion that you've written a lot about income share agreements (ISAs). We've we've had Mitch Daniels on the show talking about their ISA at, at Purdue University. Uh, can you talk about how ISAs are a? What are they a solution to? How are they mm-hmm. different from the income-based repayment plans? And sort of your views on them as a mechanism in all of this?
1: Yeah, sure. So just to, to put it very simply, to start, an ISA is a substitute for a loan. Basically, it it allows a student to take cash up front to pay for their school, but instead of making fixed monthly payments to pay it back, they're paying back a fixed percentage of their income. In in a sense, it's like equity, using equity rather than debt to pay for college. So the problem that ISAs are solving is this problem of risk. Students are are leveraging themselves to a huge degree because college is so expensive today and they're doing it largely with debt, which means that they take on the risk themselves. If it doesn't pay off, if it doesn't lead to a job and a career that's really worthwhile for them financially, they're the one who's on the hook to pay back, right? And ISA shifts that onto either the institution who's issuing the income share agreement or in theory, it could be a third-party investor who is issuing the income share agreement. So what it does is it. It allows students to continue to make that investment in themselves, but to put the onus on somebody else to shoulder that risk. Individual students, particularly young students who don't have much wealth, which is most students, are in a terrible position to take on that risk. In contrast, institutions with huge endowments or financial entities with sophisticated financial tools are in a great position to take on risk. We see this happening in all aspects of the financial marketplace. Insurance companies are, are are specializing in doing exactly this, shifting risk off of people who really can't afford to have it onto people who can afford to have it, and also pooling across individuals so that overall it's a less risky proposition. And so ISA's in theory, work really well. Something I'm waiting to find out and see is if students really like ISAs because I think that's going to be the determining factor of whether or not they play a huge role in the future landscape.
0: And when you say, I'm sorry, a huge role, um, where do you think it would reduce? um, Would it reduce student loans? Would it reduce Parent PLUS loans? Like, Mm -hmm. Where do you think the biggest uh, benefit of, of, of an expanded and much bigger ISA program would be?
1: Sure. So right now, we're seeing traditional institutions offer income share agreements, but they're using income share agreements only to fill a gap after they've already exhausted all of their federal financial eligibility for loans and grants. That's because the subsidies in the federal loan program make federal student loans really cheap relative to anything else that you could offer that's privately financed, like income share agreements. And so it's not a replacement for federal student loans right now. It's a replacement for private student loans, which we know are 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 challenging for students because they don't have those sorts of protections, or for parent and parent plus loans, which also don't have the income based repayment protections. And so, their role in the traditional higher ed marketplace is relatively narrow right now. Where we're seeing more rapid growth is actually outside of the uh, accredited, um, regulated higher education institutions at places like boot camps that are not able to tap into federal resources to pay for the degrees, where students are finding up to 100% of their cost of attendance using an income share agreement. And so in those instances, the the um, entities offering that education only get paid when the students themselves succeed.
2: So they stand next to then income-based <laughs> repayment plans as like a next step if you can't use federal financial aid in that way uh, to fill in that gap. Is that a fair understanding?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So their, their role in the traditional space will be constrained by the generosity of the federal lending program.
2: Gotcha. And then on some people, People have said income share agreements should play a role in the federal lending program itself as well. I think Jason Delisle wrote a piece, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. for, for you all at the Manhattan Institute... Uh, about a proposal to do just that, Yeah, how how should we think about that versus income-based repayment plans? Uh, Yeah. So we want to be
1: really careful because I think what some people are thinking about is federal funds being put towards the financing of privately originated income share agreements, something like akin to the FELP program, which is now defunct, where private companies are originating the the ISAs. I don't think anybody's advocating for that. But what I would love to see, and really what Jason proposed in that paper, is a movement of the existing federal loan program in the income-based protections to a redesign that looks more like an income share agreement. So income share agreements are really an elegant solution to this problem of needing cash up front and needing something to accommodate this risk. And so if we take lessons from, from what that mechanism can do um, and apply it to a redesign of the overall higher ed finance system, I think we'd be in a much better place.
0: Uh, Beth, you're working on a new book.
1: That's right. No, oh, uh,
0: well, I love the title of your last one, "Game of Loans." Uh, and so, what are what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so "Game of Loans" really tried to debunk the myth that we have a student loan crisis in which the sky is falling, and every dollar of debt leaves a student worse off. Is
2: it? Isn't? <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> and it was a great book. <laughs> Thank you. But but what,
0: okay, so why why isn't the sky falling? And then can you tell us about the, yes, the new book? Yes. And
1: so the the sky isn't falling. You know, if you take the perspective that people are using debt as a tool to make investments in themselves that more often than not pay back huge dividends in terms of their future income. Statistics tell us that on average uh, degrees that are worth, you know, people are borrowing $30,000 to to get are worth a million dollars over the course of a lifetime. So it's a pretty reasonable deal. And so, you know, that book, of course, pushed back on that narrative largely and and, and kind of made me look like a bad guy, of course, and that I was kind of poo-pooing the problems that everyone was having with their student loan repayment. But the conclusion of the book was really that the problem is not that the sky is falling. The problem is that education is a really risky venture for, for students. And so the book didn't expand in great detail on those issues. So what the new book will be talking about is, you know, what happens when we reframe the problems that are having in higher education around this idea of risk? What sort of solutions does that lead us to? Uh, And, you know, how can we redesign federal policy to work better for students in that light? What kinds of things can the private marketplace do to address the issue of risk? And what are the mechanisms that are popping up?
2: Do you have a title for it? And when can we expect it?
1: (laughs) Well, we can expect it next summer. And there's no title quite yet, but I'm hoping that my editor for this book is as clever as the last editor who was generous enough to come up with Game of Loans for me. Well, we'll
2: make sure we keep an eye out for it. And thanks so much for joining us on Future U. We'll be right back. This
0: episode of Future U was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University, and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions.
2: Welcome back to Future You off a great conversation with Beth Akers of the Manhattan Institute. And uh, uh, Jeff, you know, I, I, I asked the question and then I sort of cut off after she said, I don't know, it's kind of hopeless. But, I, you know, will the media ever give subtlety to this question of uh, the student debt question and sort of, uh, dig beneath the averages to give and, and, and outrageous stories of uh, lots and lots of debt um, to give sort of a, you know, what they found in Game of Loans, a more measured take yep. that for a lot of students, the debt problem is not a problem, but an, a reasonable investment. And for those that it is a problem, It's actually often students that took out very little in debt uh, but aren't going to complete, so not going to get the wage bump, and it's going to become a big, significant problem for them. Uh, Will we get that measure of subtlety? Uh, Well, I'm not here to defend the media, but
0: but no, I doubt it. Uh, For some reason— This is, you know, finding those outlier cases, Mm -hmm. you know, the dentist, as she said, or the, you know, the people I'm always amazed at are these people who come close to around $100,000 in debt who got an undergraduate degree from a public university. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, how did did that happen? Including them in state, right? So obviously they're borrowing much more than they needed. And the other thing about any of these stories, I I remember following up uh, years ago on a a student who wrote a letter to the editor of her student newspaper at one of the SUNY schools. And I called her up because I was really confused by, what she said her debt level was. And when I called her up to talk to her about it, she actually couldn't really talk about her debt level because she didn't know was one a subsidized, she didn't know the difference between subsidized loans, unsubsidized loans. Her parents had Parent Plus loans, but it was unclear whether that was a Parent Plus loan for her or her mm. sister. So once you started digging a little bit more deeply, they actually couldn't tell their story. And I always would tell uh, reporters whenever we did, when I was at the Chronicle and we ever did a, a story on debt, I said, get their, you know, get the info from their financial aid packages, Mm -hmm. right? Like get as much specific written information as you can. Do not go on there based on their memory because most students have no idea, to be honest with you. What they're what they're borrowing. I mean, at the end of the day, this is like you know a, a dog bites man story, right? Uh, you know, we only want to write the story when the you know the man bites the dog, right? Yeah, so, yeah. No, it's it a good, I mean it's, different. It's and, a good point, point. and, and yeah. I think that's I think that's part of it. What I thought was fascinating about Beth was that we don't talk about the GDP, right? We yeah. don't talk about what this investment buys us, and and as she was talking, I realized, my God, you know, I um, you know when I graduated from college in nineteen. 19- Ninety-five. I had, um, I think, you know, I had under ten thousand dollars in debt. I don't even remember my own debt level, but it was under ten thousand dollars. And I'll never forget six months after graduation. Back then, you get those little coupons um, from Sally May, and I think it was something like fifty dollars a month or something uh, like that. And and I think now about how great of a deal that was mm. right mm-hmm. where i am now in my life and and all that that education provided me and and here it was, it was less than $10,000 Now, of course i got married and i inherited my wife's uh, law school debt but <laughs> but uh, but no i mean it was i think for both of us uh, it was a it was a great investment and i'm not quite sure if this is a generational thing right we're both gen xers right yeah, yeah. i don't know if if the millennials kind of changed this narrative but but debt hasn't increased that much, right? The average debt is something like thirty thousand, I think, yeah, now for the right. average undergraduate who takes out loans mm-hmm. so you know six thousand dollars in 1995 dollars here it's not you know based on inflation it's not a huge difference so no. i'm not quite sure if this is generational or what happened
2: yeah and it's interesting i mean if ryan craig were, were here he'd say well the underemployment question is different and so therefore the there's reasons to question whether the return on investment is the same that it has been
0: but but there's more programs as bet totally out, totally and Ray, and
2: and and, and and my take also would be um when you have stories like yours, where it turns out really well, it's a good investment, we as individuals do not connect that success back to the investment question, right? So it's easy to forget that good moment, That's right. uh, but it's very uh, easy to remember the challenging one and to get that outlier story and so forth. Uh, but it's it's one of the reasons, like Beth, I'm very interested to follow the income share agreement uh, story to see, will it, actually capture the attention of students? Will it be something that they migrate to? Uh, Because it does protect you on the downside if, if you don't get that great job of having to pay back uh, those debt payments on a monthly basis, uh, and so it's it, it's a good protection, and it does protect you somewhat on the upside, which is to say, if you know you have, if if, if you're going to return over say two x uh, what you put in, that's all you're going to put in. So,
0: so uh, what is the future then of the uh, of the ISA? I mean, could it be big enough where it's not just a, a, a small stopgap now? As I think uh, Purdue is, is largely using it, but but truly a significant a financing option for students?
2: My sense is it's going to replace the private student loan market. Okay. That That is my own hypothesis, which is, hypothesis, not a bad which thing, is right? I think, is probably a good thing, right? I think the question is, uh, as we see people clamping down on Parent PLUS loans and things of that nature, does it also get into that space? Uh, and then the other side of it, I think, is the income-based repayment side of this on the, on the federal government side. Uh, do we see that take up more and more share as the default option as opposed to the, you have to figure out how to opt into this option and so forth? And, you know, she was talking a lot uh, about who bears the risk in, in, in these transactions. And right now her point is the learner bears the risk, whereas colleges have the balance sheets to do so, or investors might. Uh, you know, the federal government uh, could bear, uh, you know, a lot of the risk as well, and they do with debt payments. But could we make that more explicit with the income-based repayment plans? And what's the appetite, I guess, uh, in the public for doing so over time? It seems to me a question we don't know the answer to yet. Uh,
0: so, Michael, what is the? We we asked her a little bit about the agenda now of on the Democratic side of mm. in the primary. You know, two can, two major candidates have proposed kind of debt forgiveness. Besides being politically expedient, um, I mean, why, why not? Why do you think if you were um, uh, you know advising any of these candidates why not offer mm-hmm. you know in you know expanded um, income uh, contingent uh, repayments expanded isas like why haven't the candidates gone and in that direction.
2: That's a great question. I think my, my, my sense is that it's probably too subtle a message to win. Uh, it's too uh, complicated, to, to, right? Too complicated yeah. right? To win uh, headlines, and you'd have to start to you know explain some of these narratives. I also think you know it was interesting. We had Mitch on a couple shows ago, uh, Mitch Daniels, yeah. uh, president of Purdue, and he talked about how income share agreements were the rare issue that had bipartisan support. That's not my memory of how ISAs <laughs> developed. I I think it was an idea that got. Lift off on the right very early, and that a lot of folks on the left were initially quite skeptical of. Uh, I think it's evolved significantly to the point where we're taping this podcast, where it feels like it's much more bi- it's much more bipartisan now. At least now. He thinks it is. Yeah, and, and I, that's my impression too. Except I don't think that's true on the extreme left, and so I wonder in the Democratic primary, uh, it where where you see a run to the left right now uh, to issue grab and and, right. and 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 so forth if it just doesn't work as a soundbite. Well, and that, again, I also wonder if it's a
0: generational thing to appeal particularly to, you know, millennial voters. That's a great question. Uh, yeah. Or Gen Z, because we know, uh, particularly millennials, took on a, a bulk of, of, of student loans. Um, perhaps uh, Gen Xers are interested because for their own kids. But but I really saw after uh, both Warren and Sanders put out their plans, you know, on social media and on Facebook, among friends and things like that, they are, you know, uh, people who went to school when we did, are a little bit more skeptical. Like, well, even if they're supportive of their That's other policies, they're like, "Eh, I'm not quite sure why." You know, I had to take out loans and I paid them back, so I think there's a little bit less sympathy.
2: Yeah, there is um, an interesting perhaps. question of of contracts. I think and, right. pro- and and sort of what 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 you live up to and and I, I guess a reinforcing maybe of the uh, stereotype around millennials. That they uh, don't uh, that they want to play by different rules. so we've been
0: uh, asking our listeners to submit questions, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be kind of a new feature of uh, future you in this uh, third season. Uh, so uh, you know just message uh, Michael or I on Twitter or on any of our social media platforms. Uh, and just, uh, if you have any questions for future you and, and Michael, we, we had some questions come in and, uh, why don't we take on one of those, uh, this week?
2: Yeah, we got actually several questions. I'm scrolling through the list right now and uh, get to pick out one. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change it up on you, uh, Jeff. Uh, so we got one from Jeff Penta, uh, who asked the question, I think it's perfect for this topic of the future financing models uh, for higher ed. We've talked about this obviously on a, on a past issue, uh, past episode of future you with, with Mitch Daniels and the report that we did yep. there. Uh, I, I think the point being, though, to bring it up again is we just had an entire show about income-based uh, repayment and share agreements. I think this will be a significant piece of of the future of higher education. We've seen a lot of this play out in other countries like Australia and so forth. So it's not like it's a blank slate going into it. Uh, and I expect uh, in in I, I expect this to grow as a movement, not to shrink. And I think the folks. Uh, That are building support for this have been very savvy in terms of building it both outside of the system where those boot camp type programs rely on these alternative financing models, uh, as well as frankly inside the system with leaders like Mitch Daniels at Purdue, but University of Utah. Uh, And uh, a whole host of uh, Clarkson, et cetera, of other institutions. The list is building. I think you're going to start to see some consumer protections come in that very clearly say you cannot create contracts that that put people in disadvantaged places where they're going to be uh, paying disproportionate shares of their income back to their institution. Uh, and I think it'll become a much bigger part of the uh, of the future over the next five, 10 years. And, and
0: something's going to have to give, right? This
2: this yes. financing system that we have now
0: essentially has its uh, roots in in the Higher Education Act back in the 1960s when college cost a lot less and fewer students went there. Um, and the fact now is that, uh, you know, uh, family income is, is flat and falling for most Americans. The cost of college is going up. The cost of discounting for colleges is going up. They have nowhere else to turn for money. And yet we have this kind of antiquated student loan system that's based on uh, you know college costing a lot less I think and and you know this idea that you know there's there's these caps on on loans which is probably appropriate but then you have to start paying back your loans a couple months after graduation you're expected to pay them back in you know this 10-year period you know we we, we, we have so many different ways now of financing houses and cars and everything else it just seems to make sense That student loans are next. Yeah, I think that's
2: right. And there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal several months ago about the origins of that uh, higher ed financing and the higher ed act and so forth. Uh, And uh, my takeaway was, you know, for every uh, action, there is unintended consequences. And we didn't see how many how much it would succeed in terms of opening up access to students. And now we have to figure out some new models. Well, Michael, it was uh, great to
0: be with you here again uh, for another episode of future you and thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.
2: Hey, folks. Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.